You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Melissa Maley. I interviewed Melissa previously in her capacity as having been a CIA woman employee at a time when that was not easy. And she made her way in then called the clandestine service. Uh, She was engaged in operations. In fact, she was engaged in operations in one of the most challenging areas of the world for anybody, uh, certainly for a woman, and that was the Middle East. I'd like to open this interview by Referring back to your own experiences, you were in the clandestine service. You were an operations officer or case officer. You operated in the Middle East, and you dealt with terrorists. And we are seeing that played out today in the most tragic of circumstances, and that's the recent loss of seven CIA officers at the end of December in Afghanistan in cost. But I would like to ask you right now, What was your experience, your reflections, on having worked in that environment on the front lines against terrorists? Thank you, Peter. And first of all, let me say it's a pleasure being asked here today to speak to you and and, uh, your broader audience. Uh, You know, when I heard about the deaths uh, in Afghanistan of these seven officers, I very much thought back to my time working in the field, working in high-threat environments, working when death was, you know, a, a possibility. Uh, and and working against terrorists who play for keeps, and and I think about the risks that I took, and why I took them, and how I made those decisions, and and I have to say, it's not a science, but it's a series of trade-offs that you make. You have an operational agenda, a mission assignment, something that you wish to achieve. And you you need to do that. And it's not that you need to do that to make yourself feel good. You need to do that because it is impacting the security of of the United States in one way or another. So these are important issues. And you're out, so you have to weigh the, your task at hand and your environment and, and then take the risks that you think 
are appropriate. When you meet an agent in uh, a war zone or a, a, in low intensity conflict area, you don't. You have to worry about the safety of your agent. You have to worry about the safety of your operation. You have to worry about your personal safety. But you have to worry about getting the intelligence too. And I think about these seven officers who died, and they obviously decided meeting this particular agent in this particular way was worth the risk. Well, they paid for that decision, and, and I'm sure that there'll be a lot of, you know, uh, rethinking about operating procedures. But at the end of the day, these officers know what they're doing. And they choose to do this. And so I think that we, it, it behooves their memory to honor the fact that they took these risks for American safety. And, and when, I, when I did things in the field, you know, I didn't dwell too much on dying. It, you're not very capable if you're thinking about you're going to die the next moment. You're, you need to focus on, on, on living and getting uh, and operating securely. And, and so in doing that, you know, you're going to pay a lot, an awful lot of attention to the smallest of details because you never know what one of those small things is going to trip you up. Is it that you didn't notice the, the you know, the road uh, on the side of the road that the dirt had been disturbed? Is that going to be a small detail that you're going to overlook and have it turn out to be a roadside bomb? That's something that I really worried about a whole lot uh, in in my career in, in, at times. Um, or are you going to meet an agent who's a double? Who is um, who is not only just going to expose you in your operation, but actually do you greater harm, and um, and and that is a very much more difficult kind of threat because you you tr tend to trust your agents or you tend to trust your colleagues that everybody's done their job and and uh, have you know have made their best judgments that when you get into the situation that everything is going to be okay, so you can focus on collecting the intelligence. Let me ask you, Melissa, the last time we talked, um, I was particularly interested in your experiences as having been a woman in the clandestine service in the CIA. And we now understand from the media, certainly, that at least two of the seven killed were women, one of whom is reportedly the chief of base, or whatever it is called, in cost, and the other one came from Kabul. Did that strike you as, um, in any way, the fact that there were women involved in such a truly frontline job? I think it's a testimony to how the agency has changed over the years, and that uh, you know there was certainly when I came into the organization in the 1990s, there was no question women did not go to the battlefield, uh, and women were not put on the front lines. It was just not. Uh, it was not an opportunity uh, of, to serve for women. Uh, the agency has changed, obviously, and uh, and to see that women are serving in these uh, forward positions, I think, is is um, a good indicator that it is an equal opportunity uh, employer. Uh, the fact that two women have, were lost, they lost their life, uh, one reportedly a mother, you know, I'm sure there are fathers who died also. <laughs> so uh, it's tragic no matter what the gender of the uh, officer uh, is. Uh, but um, again, 
it's an opportunity to serve and and it shows that women and men are, are stepping up and to work in these very dangerous environments because they have a chance to make an impact to make a difference to make Americans safer and I must say it was one of my understandings <clears throat> that both women were in fact experts that is they were there because they had specialized in this field they had studied the terrorist target in those fields and Osama bin Laden and others so they weren't there simply filling a slot they were there because of their their deep knowledge and their willingness to volunteer for that position yes I, I heard that as well and and frankly that's what we want to see we want to have the right people deployed people who have uh, substantive knowledge uh, on what your targets are, who they are, how to get to them, and so that they can be real valid, uh, value added. It's not a question of whether they're male or female, it's just what their expertise are. And, and the fact that this was a forward deployment um, base, uh, this is truly the front line. And to have, to, for an organiza organization to be willing to put out on point the, these experts, I mean, there's a good side to that and a bad side. That means that you really are operationally more capable that you can do that, but you also have risked an awful lot because, you know, on the 30th of December, the CIA lost not just seven officers, but seven people who really had a whole range of experience and expertise. You know, if we take this incident in cost, at the end of December, as well as the attempt by Abdul Muttalib to uh, uh, detonate a device on the plane on Christmas Day. Do you see these incidents as reflecting uh, in any way a higher level of sophistication, operational savvy, planning, and so forth on the part of Al-Qaeda? I think that Al-Qaeda has proved itself to be a professional organization, to take the time and to really plan its operations, to recruit and to deploy the right kinds of operatives that can break through. Now, we have had some tremendous intelligence successes in stopping Al-Qaeda, but we obviously haven't stopped them all. You take a look at the, um, for example, the, the Christmas Day plot, and um, to an extent, the intelligence community here in the U.S. was uh, surprised by this operation because in looking at the cell that they um, that was directing the plot, it was out of Yemen, they had been looking at al-Qaeda in uh, the Arabian Peninsula as an operational unit that was focused on local operations, not striking at the American uh, homeland. And so this was a real learning point that al-Qaeda remains intent and capable to really hit the United States where it hurts the most uh, here in the United, here in the U.S. So I, I think that um, Looking at these plots, and then particularly looking at what happened in Afghanistan, it was um, certainly there was an element of luck in this for the bomber. Uh, there was um, also uh, probably some steps that the, that the CIA, you know, their own security procedures that they're going to want to revisit on how a bomber got so close into a facility with so many CIA officers. So I think there's you have a combination of Al Qaeda is uh, getting better 
is patient and continues to really sh uh, switch around its tactics, but you also have a more capable U.S. in following an uh, international community, I should also add, on following what al-Qaeda is doing and, and frustrating their operations. But sometimes, you know, mistakes are made and somebody gets by. Let me uh, zoom out for a moment and, and draw on your knowledge as, uh, as a specialist in that area. And that is we have been gearing up uh, to deal with, uh, as, we, as we withdraw from Iraq, as, as we distance ourselves from Iraq, we've been looking at focusing on Afghanistan and Pakistan, the so-called AFPAC problem. And now, almost overnight, Yemen is emerging. So now we have Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Yemen. And the latest concern, of course, is the huge numbers of Somali refugees who are fleeing the civil war there and going to Yemen, who may be recruitment targets for al-Qaeda, Taliban, whatever, in Yemen. We are seeing a phenomenon here, I think, uh, al-Qaeda and its affiliate with the Taliban, in effect, metastasizing, to use that, that word that comes from cancer. In other words, spreading in a way that almost brings into question our, our trying to localize our operations in Afghanistan or Pakistan. And you've alluded to that just now uh, briefly, but I'm wondering if you could expand on that. As you watch this happen, are you seeing something very different going on than what you've seen in the past? No, not really. Al-Qaeda has always been a global organization in orientation and in practice. I think that um, they, at times, you do see a concerted focus on the part of Al-Qaeda where their operational activity is. For a while, it was Africa, uh, and certainly for a while, the base was Afghanistan. But um, what we're seeing now is, is, is Al-Qaeda's exploitation of ungoverned zones and local grievances and using those environments to radicalize and mobilize recruits. So while we've had some success, or I would say really in, uh, a market success in getting our arms around the al-Qaeda in, in Iraq threat, uh, those fighters have to a large degree moved on and are looking for a new place to fight. Uh, and so that they've popped up in Yemen is not so surprising. Uh, or that you know they're operating in the Horn of North Africa is also not so surprising. But I think the important thing is to pay attention to what al-Qaeda's strategic goals are. And one, their number one priority is to strike a very hard hit against the United States and the West because they want to drive the uh, the West, the United States in particular, out of the Middle East, and and they and they believe that if they can do that, then governments that they believe are corrupt will topple, and then they will be in a position to take over the control take over control of these governments, uh, these countries in the Middle East. Right now, the strategic goal or the tr strategic treasure chest for Al Qaeda is Pakistan. If al-Qaeda is, is, is able to um, not just uh, establish a secure safe haven in, in Pakistan, but actually take control over the country, we are talking about a whole different kind of threat. Because 
then Pakistan provides Afghanistan, or provides, pardon me, uh, al-Qaeda with the instruments of state for, to protect their, their operatives and their infrastructure, but also provides them with a military arsenal that includes nuclear weapons. That's the priority um, goal, I believe, of al-Qaeda at this point in time. The, what we see in Afghanistan, what we see in Somalia, to a lesser extent what we see in, uh, in Lebanon or the Levant, those are also uh, areas where al-Qaeda is engaged in the struggle, but they're not central. Let me, uh, you know, you and I both share the background of having been in CIA which historically has focused on abroad, that is outside the United States. And now we see with globalization and the transnational issues, so many things sort of, that line becoming very blurry. How concerned are you by what we see in terms of uh, individuals in the United States being caught up in what appear to be either self-radicalization, they have chosen to, to decide they want to be part of the jihadist movement, or perhaps have been recruited. I, I don't know how much you've had a chance to study that, but how much of that is a concern to you? Since 9-11, one of the very big questions that uh, intelligence officials and uh, counterterrorism officers have looked at is, how big is the domestic threat here in the United States? And what, not, not just how big of it, how, what, is, what does it potentially look like? And who would be, uh, who, what kind of people could possibly be uh, moved so far in, uh, in religious extremism to uh, turn against the United States? And I think the conclusion, the first conclusions that were made was that the United States is not like Europe in the sense that the American dream is, is, for, is open to immigrants. Anybody can have the American dream if they're willing to come to the United States and work hard enough and, um, uh, and really meld themselves into the society unlike Europe. And so you don't have these marginalized uh, Islamic communities, Muslim communities in the United States like you do in Europe. But you still see these lone wolf or very small cells emerging in the U.S. And I think one of the um, conclusions that uh, our domestic uh, security uh, institutions are, are reach is reaching is that there are marginalized people inside the U.S. as well that are vulnerable to recruitment either on an ideological level or also or just on the plane uh, as the loner um, that is looking to for a cause, any cause, in order to um, to lash out at perceived uh, grievance, perceived. Um, lack of opportunity or whatever. And and I think that we've had several incidences here. Awareness is raising in the United States about the threat. But I also would be cautious. I think that the vast majority of Americans are loyal, that they when they have a problem with their government, they choose to, to work within the system to oppose it. And then we have very good policing. And certainly post 9-11, our FBI has been much more focused on organized mobilization of terror cells. And uh, you know, we've seen some of those arrests and, and heard those stories. So yes, it's possible. Yes, it's disturbing. And we continue to see them. But I'm not, that's not the kind of thing that keeps me awake at night. What does? 
What keeps me awake at night is, you know, the big threats of a dirty bomb. Uh, somebody, a terrorist organization, getting a hold of uh, a uh, of a nuclear weapon, and and then having the political will to use it. And I think that's probably why, um, when the in our intelligence community, that's why we are so focused on making sure that Al Qaeda uh, is uh, stemmed and its offensive in in uh, Pakistan. And if I could just add, I think it relates right back to Iraq as well. We take a lot of risks in Iraq in, in waging um, our intelligence uh, war against uh, al-Qaeda. And uh, when, when those risks result in deaths, there's a lot of questioning of, well, what were they doing and why were they doing that? Uh, I think that one of the things we need to be very careful about, and I know I've already said this, is but second-guessing those risks. Officers want to go out and to collect the intelligence, but at the same time, they have to work within uh, their management structure, which determines what kind of risks that, that they can take, uh, particularly in, this, in the operation that resulted in the death of these seven CIA officers. We, the question is, why were they meeting them? Why were they meeting this, uh, this agent, this double agent, uh, uh, inside a CIA facility rather than outside, which is actually, you know, uh, more of our standard um, tradecraft use. We have secret clandestine meetings at locations that we uh, are outside of our known facilities. And, of course, we don't know the details of exactly why this happened, and we will probably never know the details. I think it's inevitable that people will call this a, a failure of tradecraft because a part of tradecraft is security, as you well know. And something obviously went awry on this. Why you would have so many officers in one location meeting an, uh, an, uh, an agent who's untested but very promising. Uh, they must have deemed it a risk worth taking, and I think the record will stand that it wasn't. That was certainly the view of of uh, Director Panetta, who made a statement, as you know, to the to the Post sometime after the uh, sometime after the incident. Let me ask you one a last question, and that is, we are so used to trying to understand events abroad and interpret uh, foreign affairs, foreign statements, foreign leaders, and so forth. I know now, in your role as a consultant, you're occupying more of a middle ground. And that, you're, and that you're looking not only at what foreign leaders are saying, what is going on in foreign affairs, but I think you've had a chance to look back, as it were, and listen to the American voice and understand, to a degree, how it's being heard, the extent to which it's being heard, and how it might need to be altered in what it, if I can use that term, is saying to the rest of the world, but particularly to the Muslim world. U.S. credibility in the Middle East has really suffered over the past eight, ten years. And, um, and the American message just hasn't been heard because what, particularly in the Arab world, 
they're listening not so much to our words, but paying more attention to our deeds. And that has created an environment uh, that has made the, the certainly the region less hospitable to the U.S. and the U.S. agenda. We're beginning to turn a corner on that from what I hear from my Arab uh, friends. And the, they like very much that um, the U.S. has rediscovered multilateralism that is interested in hearing uh, what the rest of the world wants and um, are... Um, and also are sensitive to Arab concerns about wars being fought in their region without their input. I think that um, a lot of damage has been done, but that doesn't mean you cannot repair these relationships. And we are beginning to to do that. It's a it's a work that's going to take an awful lot of investment by the U.S and also a willingness to hear some things that we just don't like to hear. We don't like it when a foreign country or a media, foreign media outlet, criticizes U.S. policy or U.S. behavior. But sometimes you need to stop and listen and pay attention to that because maybe you're not going to change your policy, but at least you're going to be more sensitive to uh, what others are saying. And I think uh, overall, it can improve U.S. policy and U.S. positioning and, and our ability to advance our interests the more we pay attention to what the other countries, uh, particularly in the Middle East, what they're advocating uh, and, and what kind of relationship that they want with us. We have partners there, and we should not forget that these partners have done a lot for us. Just in these, various, in these um, incidents we've been talking about uh, here, this was, uh, you know, in, in Afghanistan, this was a, uh, was a joint operation with the Jordanians. And um, in, intelligence cooperation is even in the best of times, is not necessarily a very popular thing uh, in the Middle East. And so the Jordanians have taken great, great risks, and we really value our intelligence relations with them because they have been very helpful with terrorism over the decades. This is not a new thing. Uh, but they will have to deal with criticisms at home, and we need to be sensitive to that. Let me just follow up as we end here. Um, in the end probably the, the most fundamental and most powerful answer to Islamic extremism is going to be other Muslims. It's going to come out of the Muslim world itself, regardless of what we say, regardless of our rhetoric. Um, it will come probably w from within the Muslim world. Do you have a sense of, of, a, of, a, of a countervailing uh, uh, voice coming up in the Muslim world? as these acts of terror go on and become more and more horrific and it becomes more and more a matter of, of sort of globalized public opinion. Peter, I think you've really hit it right on the, on the head on this one, that we, in order for extremism to, and radicalism to be um, delegitimized in the Islamic world, it has to be the Islamic world that does it. There's nothing that we can say or do that will, um, that will delegitimize uh, al-Qaeda in and of itself. Uh, one of the real bright spots, I have to say, is these emerging voices. It's not just one voice. It's the emerging voices of very powerful people and also um, people of uh, uh, religious leaders, uh, uh, you know, that are community leaders, that are not big names. You know, on the big names, I would have to say, you, you had uh, the Jordanian King Abdullah start a whole dialogue, um, and, uh, and it's been going on for several years, and very 
clearly in part of this process and discussing with, uh, with, with Islamic leaders uh, that, you know, that suicide bombing is not an acceptable practice. That extremism and, and not just violence against uh, the West, but violence against Christians and also violence within the Islamic community between Sunnis and Shia, that this is not an appropriate interpretation of Islam. So you have these very important senior level voices leading this discussion. And then you have uh, religious leaders, uh, just in, 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 it seems to be more and more of them every day coming up, senior Saudi religious leaders saying quite clearly, issuing fatwas, saying that the ideology of al-Qaeda is an inaccurate interpretation interpretation. Uh, you have uh, religious leaders denouncing uh, their previous tracks saying, no, I was wrong. Um, and you, you see this in Egypt. So I think that that, is, oh, that process of Islam beginning to take a look at itself, uh, religious leaders saying to their communities that we've gotten off track and redefining what is what they stand for, uh, both you know in terms of religious doctrine and also on how on, on communal relationships. That's a, a tremendously important achievement, and I think that the United States is is best served to to encourage it quietly, but to stay out of the debate. Okay, Melissa Maley, it's been such a pleasure to uh, to have you with us today. I should mention, by the way, that uh, Melissa Maley is the author of a book, Denial and Deception, Denial and Deception, uh, which is a superb book on the agency and uh, well worth uh, reading if you are interested in intelligence affairs and the agency up until the present time. Melissa, we hope to have you back. Thank you for joining us Thank today. Thank you, Peter. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.